Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. The human-animal bond is what this show is all about, finding authors and experts to talk about cats, dogs, and the many other creatures who share our world. This is listener-supported WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station in Southampton, serving Eastern Long Island and Southern Connecticut over the air at 88.3 and at 96.9 in Western Suffolk. This is where I originated this show and have never missed a week for 14 years. At RadioPetLady.com, there's a podcast library with more than 750 episodes along with my other Pet Talk podcast shows. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible with the support of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado, where he created a variety of litters as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also brought to you by Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes and cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. I have two guests today, and both of them are philosophers about animals. The first one is an actual philosophy professor, David Pena Guzman. He's going to talk about his book, When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. And Sindor Pangal will be here from India. She is the director of dog behavior training and is studying for a master's in anthrozoology at Exeter University. And she wrote a paper about cages. And what does it mean when we cage dogs and then we call them loved family members? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, this is going to be quite a mental roller coaster ride. Everybody sit still, sit back, and get ready to hear about the book, When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. It isn't a frou-frou book. It's not a la-la book. This is the most intellectual book I have ever read. And yet I stuck with it, which is pretty interesting. It is a daunting, philosophical, academic, intellectual, amazing book. David Pena Guzman it has a doctorate, but he doesn't go by the name doctor. He's an associate professor of humanities and liberal studies at San Francisco State University. His specialty, I'm reading this off the flyleaf because I think it's very important to get it right, is he specializes in critical animal studies, the history and philosophy of science, and contemporary European philosophy, meaning he is so much smarter than any of us. Seriously, I'm just amazed. He co-authored the book Chimpanzee Rights, which I also want to discuss, and he's co-host of the Overthink podcast. David, OMG, as we say in American slang, this book is just riveting. It's riveting to me to think that there are people who study the history of philosophy, think about things that the rest of us never think about, and come up with a new idea. And I think that's really what you've done. 
people are aware of animal consciousness, animal sentience, animal emotions, but their dream life? When did this be the thing that had you jump from total academia to this gorgeous looking book that's meant for lay people to begin to understand what you spend your waking hours doing, and I might add probably your sleeping hours as well. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm absolutely blown away by the depth and breadth of your intelligence, but also your imagination. And I think that's what makes this book quite extraordinary. When did animal dreaming become the topic that that grabbed you enough to spend, I'm sure, a significant amount of time to write this quite amazing book? Thank you. You're too kind. And I appreciate you chatting with me about this on your show. You know, it's one of those things where you have an idea, you don't know if it's viable, you start testing the waters. And at some point, you have a eureka moment, uh, sometimes at the least expected time and place, and decide to really devote yourself to following out the leads that brought you to that to that idea. In the case of this book, um, it took me about two years to write, um, and I came to the to the subject of animal dreamings to a large extent by accident. I was reading about other aspects of the lives of animals. As you mentioned, I work in the philosophy of science, but also on the philosophy of animal consciousness as well as animal rights. And I was reading a scientific article that had nothing to do with the subject. And in passing, the authors of this article, which was about scientific research on uh, rodents in laboratories, they made a passing reference to what the animals that they study might dream about when they are taking naps in between doing experiments. Oh, my and goodness. It was, it was just a passing reference. I think the authors were trying to be um, funny and jovial. Yes. And in the moment, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, oh, yeah, who knows? Who knows what a rat dreams of in a laboratory? And I kept reading and I kept moving on with my life. And as the weeks passed and uh, as actually a couple of months passed, I found myself occasionally coming back to that image, the image of a rat in the center of a laboratory, maybe surrounded by a bunch of humans wearing uh, laboratory coats, mm -hmm. looking at it, and really wondering, do these animals truly dream like we do? And if so, what does that mean about their mental, their cognitive, their emotional lives, even their social lives? And so I began digging into the scientific literature to see if there was anything that I could find about the dream worlds of other animals. And I realized that there was very little written about it. Um, but there was a lot written about what happens when animals sleep. It's just that there was nothing written about dreams in particular. And as I started moving through that literature, I realized you know what, a lot of this scientific evidence is actually evidence, not just of what the bodies of animals do when they fall asleep physiologically, but it's actually evidence of them having a very rich dream life. Um, and so I decided that I should write an article. Initially, this book was meant to be only an article, um, 
And it was one of those things that I, I scratched the surface and an entire world opened up that I did not expect to see there. And the project just blew up into into a manuscript, which is how I ended up now on your show uh, on the eve of the on the day after the publication or so of, of my book, the week after. Well, I think that that what's amazing about that is and it's hard to I mean, I'd have to try and read part of a page for people to understand the density of the language, of the vocabulary and the tortured um well, you have a wonderful line in the book where, where you refer to your own academics uh, colleagues and yourself, the highbrow slang and tortured syntax of academic philosophy. And sh sure enough, I would read a sentence, which was usually a paragraph long, and think, <laughs> okay, I think I know what that meant. It was a little like German, which I don't speak, but the idea that the whole sentence is one word or the whole sentences, one paragraph, but so dense with ideas. And I just, much as you must have thought, oh, what really, what were those rats dreaming of? And what does dreaming mean? And does that mean that they have a different level of personhood, if you will, than we presume they had? I read this book thinking, David Peña Guzman and your partner, who you refer to having these wonderful philosophical conversations with over dinner, this is what you do. You think, well, if they sleep and if they dream, then what do they dream of? And if we, how do we find out what they dream of? And then if they have dreams, what does that mean? Do they? And, and then you say, do they remember their dreams? And what does that mean? It, these are questions that the rest of us are just wondering if we forgot to put milk on our shopping list. I mean, I don't <laughs> want to really make us all seem like Dumkoffs, but <laughs> the fact that you spend your life having these thoughts and having these conversations with your partner and then looking back at a whole – you have you have like 100 pages of notes, right? The footnotes are all at the end, thank God, because otherwise <laughs> the, the book itself, you would like, oh, no, and now I got to read a footnote. I'm feeling stupid. But it's like there's all these brilliant people. It's sort of like I think of Plato and Aristotle and – people just sitting around having philosophical, moral, ethical conversations. And maybe those were just for the sake of it. But I feel as if you are driven by wanting us to think more deeply and truly and respectfully of animals. And knowing that you wrote the book or co-authored the book, Chimpanzee Writes, how much of this was driven by your own feeling and or belief or knowledge that animals are not there just for us to use and abuse, but to understand and respect and live alongside? Is that Was that a lot of the driver of it, or was it really more these philosophical ideas, and then you came around to animal welfare or rights, which you don't mention in the book much? Yeah, the, the book does allude to animal rights largely through, through animal ethics. What right. are our ethical responsibilities towards other species, what do we owe other animals? Um, on what basis do we ground those responsibilities? Right. But you're right that I, I don't talk that much about animal rights. And it's because I have co-authored this other book that you just mentioned on animal rights called Chimpanzee Rights, The Philosopher's Brief, where me and a group of other philosophers write about what it means to think about animals as having what is known as legal personhood, mm -hmm. considering animals as persons under the law, 
meaning giving them the two fundamental legal rights that typically piggyback ride on the notion of personhood, which are the right to be free, liberty, bodily liberty, I go wherever I want without being kept captive, and the right to life, which is equally fundamental, the right to to not be murdered, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is definitely in the background. And I do identify as as an animal ethicist. And that means that really all my endeavors that involve animals in one way or another are motivated by my conviction that we need to change the way we as a society relate to animals, how we treat animals, what we do to animals, and how we classify animals under our legal and moral theories, which on my view are extremely outdated. And so if we think about why is David writing a book about the dreams of animals, there is definitely the philosophical interest Mm -hmm. in what does this tell us about the mental lives of animals. But for me, that question cannot be separated from the moral and the legal question, which is given the kinds of subjects, the kinds of beings that other animals are, what follows about our ethical and moral responsibilities towards them? And I guess, you know, the, the, this this line keeps moving in the sand, doesn't it? As people say, okay, well, I guess we're the greatest because we have language. Then, oops, it turns out all kinds of creatures have very complex and very meaningful languages and other sort of, you know, yardsticks or parameters that people come up with, um, each of which pushes the line further towards they have feelings, they have relationships, they they value their selfhood, their freedom. And the moral stance is, although I guess you could call it philosophical, has never seemed philosophical to me until reading your book, where these issues have been considered for a long, long time, and not necessarily about animals, but I'm sure even about people, which you don't bring up in the book, but I mean slaves, right? People who were enslaved would kind of, you know, fit into this. But fit into the question of personhood. But you you bring up this idea of moral status. So what I really like, I just want to read this one little little piece to give people a sense of why it's so interesting. Even if reading the book can make you think, oh God, this is hurting my head. It's sort of what it felt like to me. I don't know if my brain will stretch that far. It's I'll like, take that as a compliment. It do, absolutely. <laughs> That's what makes it interesting because all the time you have said in the beginning, I'm writing this book for everybody, not just for the other academics in the ivory tower. So I think, okay, uh, if you're reaching out to me, I'm going to meet you halfway. So here's this thing about moral status that I really like, where you say in the book, we can now put the pieces of the argument together, which is this very long argument about the value of animal consciousness, in a schematized form goes like this. Premise one, the foundation of moral status is phenomenal consciousness. Premise two, dreams are phenomenally consciousness states that already it, it makes the person think, okay, I may, better go back and read the beginning of that chapter. But it's still really interesting. Conclusion A, therefore, dreams confer moral status. Premise three, some animals dream. Conclusion B, therefore, at least some animals have moral status. So this is an interesting thought because I one of the things that you touch on here and there is I don't think people 
are very clear about what their own dreams mean to them or the, their loved ones or their children. Dreams is a phenomenal state. Can you talk about that even for humans so that we can then transpose it, if you will, onto animals? I think dreams are ill understood. And I think at some point in the book, you refer to your partner. Is he a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist? Uh, no, my partner is um, a physician. He's a doctor who specializes on the visual pathways to the oh. brain. Oh. Uh, yeah, so he brings more of the um, neuroscience and medical side of the equation Got to it. the table. And I, I bring the, the kooky philosophy um, and history side of the equation to the right. table. So we met somewhere in the middle. That, which is uh, perfect. So we do our own halfway. So when, um, you were, when you're having your, your conversations over drinks that aren't about, you know, the shopping list, but about these kind of issues about moral status, what is, what do we mean by, what do you mean by phenomenal, a phenomenal yes. state? Yeah. So the important thing to to note is that the term phenomenal in this particular context is a it's a term of art. It's a specialized term that has a very specific meaning in the field of the philosophy and science of consciousness. And so it doesn't mean phenomenal as in exciting or superb. Right. Mm -hmm. It has a much more technical meaning. Mm -hmm. And and that meaning can be understood by contrasting that term with another term that that usually appears alongside it. There is a very well-known theory of consciousness that says there are two kinds of consciousness. In fact, it, consciousness is not one thing. There are two kinds, and we need to keep those very clearly apart because when we conflate them, we start confusing things, and that's why we can't make progress in our study of consciousness. And those two kinds of consciousness are what is known as access consciousness, which the best way to understand access consciousness is in terms of rationality and cognition. So any mental state that involves cognitive awareness and the ability to talk about that mental state, we call it access consciousness. Um, so for example, right now I am aware of talking to you, Tracy, um, and so I am access conscious okay. of what's going on right and now. And so am I, we hope. Yes. Uh, well, let's hope that we both are. Yes. Um, and, and we're meeting halfway in, in this yes. interaction. Yes. But there is another dimension to our conscious life that is not about cognition, that is not about rationality, and that has more to do with the raw fact of being alive, with feeling things and sensing things. So let me just give you two very quick examples. One of them is seeing colors. When I see the color red, that's not really a cognitive thing. It's a pure phenomenal, meaning it has to do with the perception of phenomena. So I see the color red and I have an experience of redness, but it's not the same kind of conscious state as when I have a more cognitive mental state, like remembering a mathematical formula or trying to solve um, a mathematical problem, something like that. And so when I see a color red, I'm having a phenomenal state. I am sensing something, I am feeling something, but it is perceptual much more than cognitive. Another example of a phenomenal state is pain. 
when I, so recently, I told you this before we began our interview, I had a sports accident where I fractured my ankle and I ruptured a ligament. And that was a very painful experience um, while playing sports. Now, I, I was perfectly aware of the fact that I hurt my ankle. But the feeling itself of pain, what I was going through at the moment, that's not a cognitive thought. That's a felt reality. And so phenomenal consciousness refers to everything about our conscious life that has to do with those raw sensory feelings that maybe don't rise up to the level of cognition or rationality. So, you know, for instance, we can say uh, very young children, even infants, they will not yet have rationality. Right. Maybe they don't yet have very developed cognitive states, but they definitely see colors. They definitely f feel pain. They definitely taste flavors. And that's a kind of being aware of the world. And so just to bring this um, home, hopefully in a clear way, phenomenal consciousness refers to a collection of feelings, sensations, and perceptions that matter when we think about what it means to be a conscious subject, but that cannot be equated with high-level rationality, high-level language, high-level cognition. Um, and what I argue in the book is that this is now the transition over to moral theory. Right. When we ask ourselves, who matters from a moral point of view? The answer is those entities that have phenomenal consciousness. Wow. You know, we 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 care about the kinds of entities that, that are sentient, mm -hmm. even if they're not necessarily highly rational. That's why we care about children. And I argue that's why we should care about animals. Uh, and that's my way of moving around that tendency that you alluded to earlier, which is the tendency of, of coming up with a with a very specific yardstick for trying to say what is unique about humans and then making it seem as if only those entities that possess that yardstick right. or meet that particular bar have moral standing, which I think is the wrong way of thinking about things. And the, and the book certainly inspires thought and reflection about that. But that dreams are phenomenal states. See, yes. That was another leap that was really um, illuminating to me. So because I find dreaming very confusing. I mean, you don't bring up the whole concept of Freud and dreams and symbolism and the subconscious and the unconscious because you're talking about animals. But you have some you have one great um quote from a philosopher of science, Ian Hacking, who I'm sure in your world is really famous and uses all that tortured syntax, except for you <laughs> quote him as saying, dreams are just weird. And I just like that. It's like, yeah, dreams are just weird, even for humans. So how can we understand more or know more about the dreams of animals? I, I have a friend who was a, a brilliant physician, and I was talking to her at one point about dreams, and I should I spend more time in my psychoanalysis trying to understand them? It's all just, it just really frustrates me. And she said, I think of dreams as taking out the garbage. So there's all these very sort of mundane things that you can say. It's weird. It's just like getting rid of detritus, a mental or emotional detritus. 
but we don't, that's not really legitimate. If it's a phenomenal state, and we, at least those of us who live with dogs who dream, run in their sleep, yell, bark, uh, pant, do all kinds of things in their sleep, we were pretty sure that's a dream. Is it good or a bad dream? Should we wake them up and get them out of that place or let them continue to, we hope, chase the bunny versus being chased by a tiger, right? Right. So these dreams as phenomenal states, you're saying that in and of themselves, if they dream, that confers moral status on those animals. That's correct. And the reason that I say, so now we've talked about what phenomenal consciousness means in this um, more technical sense. And so the question then becomes, what does it mean to say that dreams in particular are phenomenal states? And what I mean is connected to the weirdness of dreams. Um, Because you're right, I mean, this is one of the things that fascinates me about thinking about the dreams of other animals. You know, my own dreams are bizarre enough. (laughs) So it just boggles the mind to imagine what another animal dreams about. And, you know, with animals that are very close to humans, like dogs and cats, maybe we can find some, we can imagine some answers right? The dog dreams probably of chasing a ball if it's having a good dream, Uh, or they probably dream of being chased by a bigger dog if they're having a nightmare. But when you get to animals that, that are more distant from us, with whom our lives overlap a lot less, it just... It, it becomes even more mysterious and yes. otherworldly. Yes. You know, what does what does a whale dream of? Right. What does an eagle dream mm-hmm. of? And yet, I, I am of the belief that the dreams of other animals, independently of what their content is, are philosophically and scientifically really fascinating and really important because they teach us a lot about the kinds of of cognitive agents that different animals are. And when I say that dreams are phenomenal states, what I mean is that if you think about a dream in the most basic sense, just the most simple definition of a dream, a dream is when a sleeping animal produces from the deepest part of its own being. We can call it the brain, we can call it the nervous system, we can call it the entire animal, but it's when an animal or a living being produces from within itself an entire alternative reality that it then experiences as if it were the real world. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so there is an element on the one hand of, of a very radical kind of creativity that is at work here because the animal must produce an entire phenomenal world, a world of sensations perceptions, and feelings. And that's how I defined phenomenal consciousness earlier, right? Even the the simplest dream. Imagine that you dream of being in a white space in the same way that most movies represent heaven, you know, just this white expanse where Mm -hmm. there's no horizon or anything. Even that simple dream is already phenomenal because you're already seeing colors, right? In this case, white, So you're already having some form of feeling, some kind of sensation, some kind of perception. And so even the simplest dream world is already a really impressive mental achievement. And it's a mental achievement that tells me, hey, the animal that makes it 
is a fundamentally creative creature. Wow. And it is a creature that has perceptions and feelings. So it's also a window onto the emotional lives of animals, especially when you're talking about more complicated dreams. Um, you know, when your dog dreams of being chased by a tiger, it's not as if the dog is only dreaming about this without feeling something in right. the moment. Mm -hmm. um, that dog is going to be terrified um, in the moment of having that dream, of having that nightmare. And so we see the emotions of animals also coming out um, and into the fore in their dreams. And there's a section of the book where I do talk at length about the nightmares of animals. Yes. I talk about dogs. I talk about rats. And I talk about elephants at length because elephants are a species about which we, we do have very interesting information about their nightmares. Um, and, and so we know that, that elephants have a very rich, very rich emotional life because they wake up panicking in the middle of the night mm -hmm. in the wake of trauma. So if you traumatize an elephant, it will lose the ability to sleep through the night. And, and that already raises really, really tricky questions about how it is that they retain that information about how it is that they process trauma and why is it that they keep reliving trauma in the middle of the sleep cycle. So there's a whole section about animal dreams that, that sheds light on this question. And, and certainly brings to the forefront, the, as you say in the book, auto-creativity. We all write our own dreams. Often we humans think, well, where'd that dream come from? Why did that happen to me? Like, you know, it's some bolt from the blue. But as you say anim in the book, animals are authors of their own experience like we are and builders of worlds in dreams. I think the idea that it takes imagination and creativity and some other whole level and layer of intelligence and emotional depth to do that is important for us to understand about ourselves too. It's rich. It's important. It matters. And I can imagine what the nightmares of those rats who, who got you on this journey to write this book when animals dream, what would their nightmares be? They're living their nightmare. I mean, people who love rats as pets, which I've read a bit about, and and I don't know if you remember Charlotte Webb, but Templeton, the greatest rat of all time, um, they're really smart and really emotionally connected to, I'm sure, each other, but they do it with us. So we're like, oh, wow, I have a rat as a pet, and he cares about me, and he, he's aware of me. But imagine being in a cage your whole life and having these experiments done. And maybe the only time you can escape is when you dream. I mean, I'm sure that must have occurred to you too. The only time they can get away from the horror of their rat in an experiment life is to dream, right? That's right. Um, and one thing to consider here is that rats recently, we have learned a lot about them and the complexity of their emotional and social and I would even say cultural lives. For a long time, they were seen um, in light of a lot of prejudices that we hold yes. <laughs> against yes. them. Um, yes. You know, dirty creatures yep. that are um, bringing disease into human communities. Um, uh, this is the legacy of, of the plague. Yes. And even recently, we've learned, for instance, that rats 
love to laugh. Um, you can tickle a rat and through touch establish an emotional bond with him or her that they love. Um, mm -hmm. If you tickle a rat, they will come back for more because they enjoy that kind of social connection rooted in touch. That's a quintessentially mammalian trait. And it's something that for a long time, philosophers and scientists thought, mm, this is something that only humans do. Right. Um, laugh in pure joy. And now we know that that's not true because rats, um, those creatures that for a long time we feared as carriers of disease, are actually quite friendly social animals that can be friends. I, th um, I think that, you know, th we could, there are so many wonderful aspects to your book and we've run out of time, David, but I, I just hope people will pick up this book. It's so great looking. It's such an amazing looking book that people, if they're in a bookstore, you guys remember what bookstores are from the old days? You will definitely <laughs> pick up When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. David Peña Guzman, you have done an amazing job and a great service to all of us and to the creatures who share our planet. Thank you so much for this wonderful book and for thinking such good and great thoughts. I really appreciate it, appreciate it Tracy. Thank you very much for having me. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and to the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. This show is also supported by Cradle, calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. It is so wonderful to have back on the show Sindor Pangal. She's one of my favorite people because she looks at dogs in a very different way from most of us. She's quite a genius in understanding streeties, as she calls them, the, the loose dogs of India. She's the director of a dog behavior and training center called Barks, mostly now online education, but of course that's where a lot of education takes place. She's moved outside of Bangalore City to a little farm, and she's getting a master's in anthrozoology from Exeter University. And in the process of doing that, she's been sending me some of the papers she's been writing. They're very interesting, very academic, which is what you have to do when you're getting a master's or a doctorate. But this one topic, Sindor, is one very near and dear to my heart. And I'd love to talk about it both from a personal hum humanistic point of view, as well as the way you've done it, a critical review of the practice and scientific literature on the practice of crating companion dogs in homes. Do we confine family members in small cages? So welcome back to the show, and I'm very glad to have your voice continuing to be part of awareness of who dogs are and who they are to us and what we are to them and what we do to them and what we expect of them. All these things that many of us go, well, sure, of course, you just create dogs. That's what you do. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your paper, which is part of getting your master's, about confining indoor dogs homed dogs to cages. This is something that is accepted in the West. I don't know if it's accepted yeah. in Indian culture as well. Certainly the West, meaning, you know, the whole West, yeah. including England and all sorts of far-flung places. <laughs> I've never been comfortable with it except for just the early puppy development, just until they get bowel and bladder control physically in order to help right. with, with house training 
and nothing else. So talk a little bit about how you came to your uh, very thoughtful position about what we're doing to dogs when we cage them. Right. So uh, thanks for having me again, Tracy. I love talking to you. It's always very provocative conversation. <laughs> uh, and this one, this one can get people very upset. Uh, and I think that was really the interesting part for me because, um, as you can imagine, I do enjoy the benefit of coming from an entirely different culture, which That's means right. that I look at things differently. And uh, uh, in India, we don't really create that much. It's not a big uh, habit per se. Uh, and so it was surprising to me. I was I had a very open mind about whether it made sense or not. And then I ran into uh, my teacher, Ture Drugas, who vehemently uh, pushed back on it and objected to it. And so that's really when I started looking at it. And, and what surprised me was... Um, how agitated people got about it when we when we chose to talk about it. It was as if it was a uh, it was almost a religion, something that cannot be touched and questioned. Mm-hmm. And what was even more interesting to me is when I started looking at literature around it, scientific evidence around it. What is uh, fascinating is that almost all animals and many 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 studies done on many different animals, mammals, birds, reptiles all of them repeatedly come back with the same thing, which is animals do not like confinement. And that just makes sense. Common sense tells us that, yes, no animal should be okay with confinement. Um, And even with dogs, we know that animals are, dogs are not okay with confinement. But so much of all these studies, uh, particularly with dogs, is limited to um, shelter dogs and dogs in labs. Right. there isn't even a consideration of, so how does all of this become okay when it comes to our companion dogs in our homes? Suddenly, all of this information is out through the door, and we assume that what we have at home is a completely different being, which is not like any other animal or like a dog in any other situation. And so we don't, we do not even want to ask the question mm-hmm. of whether this is good or bad for them. We just assume that it just it's okay. And I've heard a lot of justification around it with arguments that suggest that it is okay for dogs. They're okay. They like it. They they appreciate it. But none of them really hold water. And that's surprising to me that uh, we build such a strong culture and case around this without actually much scientific support for it. Well, you have two pages, uh, single space <laughs> pages of footnotes, if you will, you know, references in that very proper way that people do when they're being academic. So you have (laughs) really immersed yourself in this and looked back as far as there are studies that have been done. And when you say okay with it, you're not using the academic words that are used in those studies and that you use in your paper, which are um, massive stress response. When any animal is trapped in a cage, we basically put dogs in a have a heart trap. Now, we Mm -hmm. use a have a heart trap to get a feral cat and get it spayed and neutered and then put it back into a colony or into a community. Or maybe somebody wants to catch a fox or a woodchuck, which they need to take off their property and have somebody drive it out in somebody else's woods, right? Have Mm -hmm. a heart meaning it doesn't kill it and the intention is not to kill it, but to trap it and confine it. And most of the crates that people use in their houses are just barely big enough for a dog to turn around 
Often standing upright is not even all that comfortable, but it's sort of nose to tail. So I think I've always been very concerned about people who and, – and, the, and then there's the second part of your paper, which is fascinating. What do we mean by love? What do we mean by family member? But when a loved family member, an unfortunate child, is locked in a closet – Sometimes children are chained to something. Of course, that's child abuse. And when it's found out, the poor child is taken away from these parental people who, if you know, if everything goes correctly to justice, go to some sort of jail themselves, which is a cage for humans, little bigger, but not a whole lot bigger. And and, and it's considered cruel and unusual punishment to confine anybody or anything that we love. People worry about zoos, so zoos are now not so cagey. They're more, oh, it's a kind of natural environment, and everyone, I say everyone, I'm not speaking for everyone, it's lowercase e, but many people have misgivings about caging all kinds of animals, as you said, birds, reptiles, turtles, as well as mammals in zoos. And then in shelters, it's what you have to do for logic and safety, and we know that the sooner we get them out of that cage, which is bigger than a crate, bigger than a crate in your house, the sooner we get them out, the less chance they're going to go non-scientific term bonkers. So (laughs) we put our dogs in these crates. Now let's, leaving aside house training, it's a very useful tool for about a month, but it has to be used with great sensitivity. You don't leave a little puppy in there for more than a couple or three hours at a time because the puppy needs to go to the bathroom, which is what you're using it for, and then play with you and be with you and be socialized. But beyond that, the idea that it's a den, which is the myth that has been promoted. So people say they love a den. They're den animals. First of all, dogs aren't wolves, and wolves aren't den animals either. So talk about your comments in your paper about this abuse, uh, distortion of the idea that either a wolf or a dog, two different species, really quite different, want to be in a den at all, A, or B, in a locked den, which is different. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, I think, one of the uh, most commonly heard argument, which is uh, dogs are den animals. They're used to something like this, and therefore uh, it makes complete sense. And so we do not have to, uh, it's not going to stress them out or it's not going to create that stress response. Um, Now we can come at this from many angles. First up, uh, even if you were to look at animals that live in small um, confinement, uh, small little holes, like if you were to look at snakes or rats, uh, we see that uh, studies on even these animals tell us that confinement is different from living in a small hole that yes. you constructed. Yes. Much like a house <laughs> is different from a prison. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, know? you. Yes. It's a matter of uh, control uh, and uh, how much freedom they have. And that loss of freedom is really um, the big concern here. The second is the argument that dogs are den animals, and there's really no evidence to support that at all. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, a mole or a rat is probably more like a, a equivalent of something like a den animal. But dogs, we don't uh, see them um, 
spending large parts of their time in den-like structures. They may do it on very rare occasions. And I come from a place where I look at um, streeties. And so I get to see their sleeping behaviors and ethograms. And we do not see any evidence of any um, um, any time that they're spending in den-like structures, the exceptions, and those exceptions are important to consider <clears throat> as well. The exceptions are probably when uh, maybe they are denning, and that is sort of their whelping or they're having puppies. And that may be one situation where, and I say maybe because it's not all the time. Uh, and the other often is when there is when they're terrified and there is no place yes. for them to run. Yes. And that's important to remember. There's no place for them to run because most times when animals are afraid, they want to keep their exit options open. Correct. The only time they're going to go into a hole and back themselves up in a hole is when an exit option is not open. It's really they're outnumbered or they're terrified and they're hiding. And so when we try to simulate that in our homes, what exactly are we doing? <laughs> Exactly. Are what are we them offering them? We're going to put them in a situation where they're that terrified. Uh, no. This is a conversation that needs to be had. Where is this coming from, this whole uh, line of thinking? Right. And then you have people. Well, you know, the thing that you don't that you don't mention in here, because really your your emphasis, which is fascinating, is on the is on language, a loved family member. It's very important. But the thing you don't bring up, which is the thing that most concerns me in terms of the very high misery and stress level of a dog who is caged, it's learned helplessness. And this is something really important for us to understand. Because a dog will accept something and appears calm, they have probably shut down, shut down emotionally, withdrawn within themselves. They're having a really bad day, people. And you're saying, see, she sleeps in, in the crate because she has no choice. You have taken away any choices from that dog. And they have learned to be helpless. You are totally yeah. in charge. They cannot, they can barely move. They are yeah. trapped. So I think that that's the part of, of crating that people don't understand. Well, my dog doesn't mind. She goes in there and lies down. Yeah. But what yeah. else could she do? I've had dogs that scream and almost break their teeth off trying to bite the bars of a cage. Even when they're yeah. young, Yogi Bear, my yeah. Rottweiler, sprayed diarrhea mm. all over it. In an, he was a little boy. He was nine or ten weeks old when he was found at the side of the road. I never, ever tried to put him in there again. To house train him, I put on a metal chain leash because otherwise he'd chew through a, a a leather or a nylon one and put him next to my bed. So I could hear the leash, the chain leash rattle, or he would cry and I would get up and take him out, which is what you should do with a little puppy anyway, when they cry in their crate. But he would not accept a crate. And I thought, good for you, guy. You let me know that there's <laughs> no way you could figure out how to live with this. It was unbearable for you. So Talk about love and family members and how we abuse those words if we're going to use them genuinely. Yeah, uh, that that was really uh, something that struck with me. Uh, and uh, so I, I will address your point on um, uh, the reactions and the seeming helplessness that we see. Uh, it was really interesting for me that right about the time I was kind of writing this paper or thinking about writing it, um, I had a, a, a 
problem of a rat in the house and I had put out a, a, a little cage to trap this uh, rat. It was uh, not one of those rat traps that kills them, but a cage where you lure them in with right. a like with a have a cheese. heart. We call that a have a heart. Uh, yes, yes. And um, and uh, a rat was actually trapped in it. Uh, and I saw what the rat... I didn't realize that the, uh, there had been a rat trapped in it because... A lot of times we tend to think that when an animal is distressed about being trapped, we're going to see the animal kind of thrashing about in the right, cage. Right. But this rat was completely silent, um, just sleeping in a corner or looked like the rat was peacefully sleeping in a corner. But we all know that's not really the case. The rat was trapped, had nowhere to go, probably tried a few times and then gave up very, very quickly and uh, and looked very peaceful indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the pest control guy came to uh, release the rat and the rat barely moved, just looked up and uh, and to my untrained eye, because I'm not a rat behavior expert, <laughs> uh, the rat definitely looked very peaceful, but I know that was not the case. And I think this is really important for us to remember because when a lot of people say, my dog likes um, the right. crate, my dog is calm in the crate, um, uh, has the dog really learned anything else? Is this the only thing that they have learned? Because, uh, I, you know, hundreds and thousands of street dogs later, I have not seen a free spirited animal, a free living animal who would willingly go into an enclosure and say, yep, I'm okay with going mm-hmm. into this. And yes, you can shut the door and lock me in here and I'm okay with it. And if I were to use a little bit of empathy and see what kind of humans would probably do it, it's a scary thought. Yes. It's absolutely a scary thought to imagine that there would be a human being willing to say, yep, it's okay. I will go and sit inside and I'm happy to be locked up inside the space. Uh, it's so scary that uh, it's disturbing. But when it comes to a dog, it's not. It's okay. And I think I started asking this question about love because... When I started going down all the all these lines of um, thinking or thought, and I felt this huge objection to even have, uh, you know, sort of pushback on even having this discussion, even opening up to the discussion was not okay. And I started asking, why is that? Why is that it is okay for us to lock up our dogs, say it's okay if they're experiencing helplessness. It's okay if we put them in a place where they're feeling completely crushed and don't see an option. It's okay if you have a a, huge stress response, but this is not a conversation I want to have. Uh, We claim to love our dogs. Shouldn't this be a big concern for us? If somebody came and told me, hey, there there is a possible evidence that what you're doing can hurt your dog, it's something I want to take a step back and think a hundred times before I do that. I've heard a lot of people ask me, where is the evidence that a crate is bad for a dog? And I'd ask you, where is the evidence that it is okay? (laughs) I mean, I won't drive a car unless a safety test has been done on it. And you tell me that piece of equipment is okay for me to use. It's not the other way around. Uh, And and, And the other thing that you say is about human convenience. People who yeah. either haven't successfully done uh, toilet control or they want to be away for very many hours so that the dog's right. need to pee or poo is simply denied because he's locked in a small enclosure and he has to hold it until you yeah. are able to come back from your eight-hour day or your nine-hour day. So you've done what? You've locked a dog with no ability to stretch around, look out a window. Uh, 
drink because the little water things tip over or go to the bathroom or stretch out and put all four legs up in the air, whatever the things the dog might do, even on a boring day home alone. So, I mean, that, that convenience thing, and I've had people say who crate the dog the whole day, which is beyond my belief for an adult dog. And they say, yes, but um, I don't know what he'd do otherwise to my carpets and furniture. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Higher value for your inherited carpet than your love dog. What do we say to that? What? And anyway, who says the dog would do anything to the furniture or carpet? He wouldn't be stressed. He wouldn't be all wound up and freaked out quietly or noisily if he had freedom. He's not in there. I mean, dogs aren't carpet eating creatures unless they're not in a good place mentally. Right. Exactly. And I think that's that's really the critical thing is to say that if your dog is doing something you don't want the dog to be doing, even they're outside the crate. Address that. Ask Thank yourself you. why or find a professional who will ask why and answer why and address that. If you, Like you said, a dog is not a carpet-eating animal. <laughs> so if your dog is eating that, that's that's absolutely unnatural behavior and you need to be asking why and yes. addressing that. It's yes. often a sign of something that they're struggling to cope with and that's why that's you're right. seeing these uh, possible maladaptive behaviors. Address that. Don't just lock the dog away uh, and say the problem's gone. It isn't. The problem Problem's gone for you, but for the dog, whatever caused that behavior in the first place very much exists. And this is an animal you claim to love. You just ask the dog to internalize their uh, whatever they're struggling with and saying, you know, as long as my cup is fine, I'm okay with whatever you're going through. I don't care. Uh, exactly. That's really where I start asking the question of what does love mean then? You have ended this on a perfect note. What does love mean? What does a family member mean? And just imagine yourself locked in a cage or your human child. You're doing that without thinking because someone told you it's okay. We used to do all kinds of awful things to children and to dogs, and we've all gotten smarter and wiser and kinder. Cinder Pangal, thank you for helping us do that with our dogs. It's a really important conversation, and people should start having it and think about it. Once you think about it, guys, I hope that your own morals and ethics will kick in and you won't do it anymore. You'll find another solution to having your dog, your love family member be in your home. Thank you, Sindor Pangal. You're doing an amazing job. I can't wait for you to get your master's and then your doctorate and show them the proof that they need, the naysayers. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me again. This show is supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creating holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food from human edible ingredients shipped in frozen pouches directly to people's doors. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.